If you would turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 39, Isaiah chapter 39, and there we're going to have a great opportunity to continue this narrative portion that's kind of in the middle of the book of Isaiah, and it will allow us to to explore more about King Hezekiah, more about his situation, and uh, further explore some of the lessons that we have here because we saw last time that the biblical prophets are not just about the, the high and lofty notions of God moving the nations according to his will, which indeed he does, which should fascinate us, which should encourage us because we know what he's moving it all toward, but it is also about his people individually and collectively, that he is concerned with the lives of each and every one of us. And we saw that last week in Isaiah chapter 38 as uh, King Hezekiah prayed that he would have more life, that he was sick, that the Lord told him you're going to die. And uh, he rolled over and he prayed a very simple prayer for, uh, for more life and the Lord granted it. And so we see uh, God's great mercy and concern even for individuals here. Today in Isaiah 39, we see shortly after being granted this this extended life, he receives visitors from Babylon who come on a diplomatic mission that on the surface is, hey, we just heard about your illness and you got over it. That's great. We're here to celebrate that with you. Uh, But deeper down may have been something more of uh, intel gathering on the part of the Babylonians. And so we're going to take a look at Isaiah 38, and we're going to see good King Hezekiah make a mistake. We're going to see him do something foolish out of his pride. And before we quickly judge him and condemn him for what he does, we will soon see ourselves in it. So let's uh, turn to chapter 39 and see what we can see. So I'll bring it up here for you as we endeavor to do this. Okay. In chapter 39, it says this. At that time, Meredek Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent the envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. Well, let's begin properly with 
a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for these words. We thank you for your servant Hezekiah. We thank you for the opportunity to learn from him in your word and to see your glory and to make you known. We pray this day, Lord, that you will be glorified through what's preached and that you will be known all the more by us and that we will be strengthened for the work of your ministry. We thank you, so send your spirit to give us understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing we want to see here is that um, there's this great diplomatic opportunity that he is presented with here. News had spread about his sickness, and as was important in the realm of diplomacy in those days, it wasn't too different from the way it is now. You hear your a leader of a, a foreign country is near unto death, but is suddenly saved. So, okay, send the diplomats over there and tell them we're glad that you lived and hope we can continue to have relationship with you through the years or whatever. Judah's position in the world was very valuable. They were, uh, Babylon was on the other side of the Assyrian Empire, the other side of the Fertile Crescent. And so they were on two different sides of this great Assyrian empire that seemed to be conquering everybody. Now, how the Babylonians made the journey to Israel, I don't know. I don't know how it was they were able to navigate this, this tempestuous time, but nevertheless, they somehow got through Assyria and were able to come to, and maybe just the nature of their visitation, their diplomacy was enough for the Assyrians to permit this, but they do manage to come to Judah to celebrate the recovery for Hezekiah. And if we look at this from the political point of view, this would give Hezekiah a chance to form an alliance against Assyria. And deeper than that, perhaps this was a chance for the Babylonians to do the same with Judah, but at the same time to gather intel as they went and as they visited. So it's kind of an interesting situation that they find themselves in. But those are all just pragmatic and political considerations. That was not the mission of Israel. The mission of Judah was not to simply be clever politically, to forward their own means by all means practical, to make deals with other nations for their advantage. That was not the covenant God had with them. They were to be a blessing to all nations. I'll remind you of what it says in Genesis chapter 12, when the Lord first called Abraham to himself, and he said these things. He said, the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. That's the land that they're currently in, in Judah. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So you see the word families there, that means nations, because the nations came from families. When they were divided at the Tower of Babel, it was according to family groups. And this promise of God to the, the nation before they were a nation, when they were still yet one man and one woman, Abraham and Sarah, his promise is, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
And this mission never changed for them. Even when they went in, they became great and numerous and went into captivity in Egypt and they, God brought them out of Egypt and planted them in the land, a place that had cities they didn't build and vineyards they didn't plant and crops they didn't plant and all these great things that the Lord provided to them as he judged the nations that were there. All that was done for a purpose. That they were to be a kingdom of priests a holy nation. Being a kingdom of priests is the implication that they were effectively to be the priests for the world, the go-betweens for the entire world, for all the nations of who the true God is. To be his representatives, to represent God to the nations, but also to represent the nations to God. And that never changed. That's reiterated in their covenant at Mount Sinai that indeed they would treat foreigners a certain way, that they would follow certain laws so as to be distinct from the worship of other gods in the surrounding nations. They were called to be distinct. They were called to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. And so with bearing that in mind and bearing that we have these hundreds of years, centuries of history prior to Hezekiah, almost a thousand years for the nation, that Hezekiah should be thinking, oh, here come some diplomats from a foreign land, what should I do? Well, I should bring them in and read to them the scriptures and tell them about how the Lord chose Abraham and multiplied him and made him great and multiplied the people in Egypt and brought them out with all these great miracles and everything, settled them in this beautiful land and has protected them from enemies when they were good and disciplined them when they were not. And so I hope that this is beginning to sink in as far as the application, let's hint at where this is going for us. The New Testament calls us a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That the church of Jesus Christ is a nation that was not a nation. That we were told to go and make disciples of all nations. And so it should be very obvious to us the application here. That the priority when engaging with the world, when, when engaging those who do not have the true God, our priority ought to be the mission. And so here's this opportunity. The Babylonians have come to them. And that is the old covenant equivalent of a visitor coming to church. Don't you love it when a visitor comes to church? You know why? You love it because you didn't have to knock on their door. You didn't have that awkward moment of trying to make small talk, but let's get around and talk about whether you're going to heaven or hell. You know, and trying to make that transition. You didn't have to go through all that. They came through the door. That's permission to talk about. That's an automatic. They came to visit Judah. They're your guests in Judah. That means you set the agenda on what you're going to do. Hey, sit down. Let me read to you from the book of Genesis. So this is a perfect opportunity for Hezekiah, but instead, he shows them all his stuff. And he shows them everything. All their wealth, all their armaments, 
They're able to do a quick count. Wow, how many how many uh, chariots did they have parked over there? I don't know. I didn't have time to look, but it looked like they had a lot of ammo stored up and stuff. And But we know where it is now. And so he does this. And this is interesting because this is the first mention in this passage of the fact that Babylon would take Judah into exile. When we look at verses 6 and 7 there, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon, including the people, it goes on to say. Some of your very own descendants. Now, Isaiah has already mentioned Babylon in his preaching and everything. As far as we can sort out the timing and everything, by the time they pay this visit to Hezekiah, Isaiah had already preached about Babylon, about the fact that they would ultimately overthrow Assyria. And he had already preached about the fact that they were going to be a major nation, but that they themselves would one day be judged. Now, he hadn't yet preached about the fact how this is going to affect them personally until this day. And then he says, they're going to carry us away one day, all our wealth and our people into exile. So that's when we discover really and truly that what he had committed was just a grievous and prideful sin. He showed them everything now, on the surface, you would say this is just plain foolish, and it is. And Isaiah confronts him, showing that this was not just foolish, this was not just a mistake, this, in fact, was a sin. And this was a sin, and at its root was the sin of pride. To understand this, we go to the parallel account, because as you know, Hezekiah's life is accounted in Second Chronicles, as well as Second Kings. And so, like the Gospels, each one gives certain details that the others don't. And when we go to Second Chronicles, we find certain details about this situation that we find very helpful. It says there in Second Chronicles chapter 32, starting in verse 24, it says, In those days Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death, and he prayed to the Lord, and he answered him and gave him a sign. Remember, we just read that in chapter 38. But Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. Therefore wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem. But Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. Now let's go down to verse 31 to talk some about the wealth and everything they have. And so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, who had been sent to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. Because someone could well read the account in Isaiah and say, why didn't God stop it? Why didn't he send Isaiah sooner while the men were still there to say, hey, don't go showing them everything. Well, this is why he left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. This was a test, and Hezekiah failed. And Hezekiah's failure was a spiritual and theological 
failure. Raise your hand if you are a theologian. Okay, keep trying. Every human being is a theologian. All that word means is what do you know about God? Every human being is a theologian. The only question is whether you're a good one or not. And being a good one starts by admitting the fact that you are a theologian. So raise your hand if you are a theologian. Okay, that's better. We all are. And his failure is one of theology. He doesn't understand the ways of God or else he, it, his desires and his sin overshadowed what he knew about God. Because we know this about God, that all good things come from him. Here's how James puts it in the New Testament. He says, do not be deceived. And notice he begins, do not be deceived. In other words, what I'm about to say is a point at which you will likely have someone try to deceive you. And so he says, do not be deceived. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Did you see that? Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Oh, what's he talking about? Is he talking about spiritual gifts? Is he talking about uh, the fruit of the Spirit? Is he talking about the windfalls, you know, like when a great sum of money comes in the door or whatever? No, he says every good gift and every perfect gift. Everything good we are to look at as coming from God himself. Because indeed, it does. Now, this is a challenge to people to understand this because many people will say, wait a minute, I, I, my paycheck comes and it's deposited into my account, not because of God, but because I did it, because I earned that money, because I went to work and I made wise choices and I got myself promoted. And so the size of that paycheck is on me. Well, who made you able to work? Who made you desire to work? Because you realize there's some people that don't desire to work. And some people do desire to work. And what can they attribute that to? Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Listen to how it's stated here in, in John. John chapter 3, which is interesting because John chapter 3 is about being born again. John chapter 3 is Nebuchadnezzar, not Nebuchadnezzar, Nicodemus, another big N-word. Nicodemus is visiting Jesus. And he says, what is this you're talking about? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And this has the famous verse in it. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. And look what it says later in that same context. That John answers somebody. This is John the Baptist speaking now. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. 
this is really important because what we're talking about here is pride and the root of pride is a human being who thinks that their benefits, that their situation, that their abilities, that these things are all a matter of their own doing. Let's look at one more verse in the New Testament to show this is unanimous among all the New Testament writers and the Old Testament as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, when Paul is speaking to the people who are having problems in worship, they're having difficulties in the church, they're having people not get along for one reason or another, and one of the things they're doing is they're dividing among themselves, saying, I follow this guy and I follow that guy or whatever else. Well, listen to what Paul says. He says, Uh, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You see, Paul is speaking in terms, and, and John the Baptist was back there in the book of John, speaking in terms even of salvation itself. And so this becomes important. Hezekiah needed to know where all good things come from. He needed to realize that. And if we have wealth, we are merely stewards of it. This is why I think Isaiah says it this way in verse 6, back there in Isaiah 39, he says, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. It's that reminder, it's a subtle reminder, all that your fathers have stored up. You're not the one who put all that stuff there. Sure, Hezekiah is responsible uh, for some of it, but all that also by the grace of God. See, it was the wealth of his predecessors. Hezekiah couldn't claim credit for all of it. But who was it that established the nation? Why was there even a nation here? Why was there even a line of kings of David here? Who brought them out of Egypt? Who sent his only son to die upon the cross? And who raised him up on the third day? Was it you? Me? It was the Lord. So Hezekiah's mistake was an issue of pride. Because in the Lord's family, boasting is excluded unless we boast in the Lord. And Paul says exactly that at one point. But look what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As he opens this letter, he contrasts the wisdom of God with the wisdom of the world. He begins to speak about the fact, yeah, there's different apostles and stuff. You all follow in different ones for different reasons. Look what he says here. He says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, Now, he's talking about us. You realize that, right? He's talking about believers, and he says, you know, we're low and despised in the world. But I I don't take offense to that. One of the foolish things, one of the blunt instruments he's hammering against the forces of evil with. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him... You are in Christ Jesus, 
who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He's quoting from Jeremiah. So this was a mistake concerning pride, and pride, as we know, is a sin. And if we but quickly review the Proverbs and run through the Proverbs, you'll see that to be ever so plain. But despite the fact that this was a prideful sin, that this was a problem, we see the Lord with a very merciful response here. Doesn't seem merciful at first. It seems like he brings the hammer down. But let's go back to those verses. And here's what we'll discover in verses 6 and 7. Uh, some of your own sons, all the stuff, some of your own sons will be carried off. They will be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. But there will be peace and security in my days. The Lord revealed to him, it's not going to happen in your life. It's going to come later. And it's important to understand, too, not to hang the entire exile on Hezekiah. There were many other sins that Isaiah and that Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all the prophets spend reviewing that were part of the problem with Judah and Israel that took them in ultimately into exile. There were many other things that were accounted as the reasons for their being taken into exile. So it's not just Hezekiah, though he plays a part in it. And this is important maybe for us to understand because indeed as we see difficulties in the world, difficulties in our church, difficulties in our families, there is never a situation in which the difficulties of any church or family or group of people of any kind is 100% the fault of one individual. It just doesn't happen. And you know, we want to see it that way. We want to understand it that way. And you'll often see uh, when we read stories or when we watch films and things like that, you'll often see the plot where there's good guys and bad guys. And that's an incredible oversimplification of the problem. Amen? So he receives this sentence, though it seems to be a merciful sentence because it didn't happen in his lifetime. And what he says there in verse 8 seems selfish on the, on the surface when he says the word of the Lord that you've spoken is good. In other words, he accepts it. And that is what was spoken of in Second Chronicles. He humbles himself. He recognizes that the word of the Lord here is true and right about him and that he deserves whatever's coming. But then he recognizes this grace. There will be peace and security in my days. That there is a Commutation of the sentence, is that the right word? So Hezekiah had humbled himself before the Lord, as we saw back there in Second Chronicles 32, 26. According to the covenant promises of God. Think about this. Think about Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, very famous verse, where the Lord tells them at the dedication of the temple, through his servant Solomon, he says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and heal their land. The most important promise of all, both in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, you ready for this? 
the single most important promise, a promise that is common to both covenants, old and new, is simply this. When God says, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's the covenant relationship. That's the unconditional purpose of in relationship of God with his people is that I will be their God, they shall be my people. And this implies that when Hezekiah makes a mistake, he's not giving up. And our covenant is to glorify him, to represent God upon the earth. Remember when mankind was first made, they were made in the image and likeness of God. They were put in the garden, they were given dominion over all the earth to be God's representatives in ruling. And that continues to be a, a commitment on our part through the covenants to put forth the best effort in the power of his Holy Spirit to represent him and glorify him in the earth. So do you understand, it's not going to be accomplished through sinless perfection. Do you realize in the covenant with the Israel, God set himself up for a win-win situation with them? Now, first of all, when he made the covenant with Abraham, he's the only one that ratified the covenant, ratifying both sides of it, so that if the covenant should fail on either side, he would pay the price in death. Did you realize that? He put Abraham to sleep, and this burning cauldron went between the parts, and the Lord recited the terms. so that the Lord would be guilty if the covenant was broken from either side. Well, the Lord didn't break the covenant, but Israel broke the covenant. And did the Lord die as a result? Lord Jesus Christ gave himself a sacrifice for sin on behalf of the people. And so it goes all the way back to that. It goes all the way back, that covenant relationship, that idea that he has paid the price for sins, that he has secured both sides of the covenant. And those that are in the covenant, therefore, make every effort to obey and glorify him, but we are not instantly washed and purified of every sin. So we will commit sins. So what do we do when we commit sins? We go to him who is our God still and we repent. And he is faithful to forgive and to purify. Now there's other aspects, there's other things to be done when the inevitable sin happens. And first of all is repentance, accepting his correction and his cleansing and then moving forward in our relationship with him. But there's other things that need to be done too. We need to make it right with others. Sometimes an apology is appropriate. Sometimes leaving the sacrifice at the altar, so to speak. In other words, not, not going to worship one more time until you deal with the issue. To reconcile with brothers and sisters in Christ. But see, these all flow out of that same covenant relationship. They all flow out of the fact that he is our God and we are his people. And so this merciful sentence comes uh, for Hezekiah and it, and it is indeed a, a tremendous mercy that comes. He humbled himself and the Lord 
according to the covenant promises, forgave him. Well, what are some of the encouragements we take from this? First of all, my encouragement is this. Take every opportunity to praise God for all the good things of life because from him all blessings flow. And understand that we will each be tested on this issue. We will all be tested on our pride because we can be prideful about nearly anything. We can be prideful about our walk with God. We can be prideful about our theological knowledge. We can be prideful about our good reputation. We can be prideful about the sins that lay in the past that we are no longer subject to. We can get prideful over those things, thinking that we have overcome those things. Now, have we overcome? Yes. But you've overcome in Christ. By the power of Christ, by the grace of God, you have overcome those things. Did they take effort on your part? Yes. Did they take choice and decision on your part? Yes. These are all matters of choice. But we look to him who enables the choosing. We look to him who empowers with his spirit the discernment of these things, the recognition from his word of the sin itself, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the encouragement of his people who are kind enough to point out a fault when we have that log in our eye. But we will all be tested on this situation. And we have to ask the questions. Who gave us the minds that we have? Who gave us the experiences that led us to be where we are? Who gave us the parents or the church to instruct us in the right way? All these things are of grace. And who withheld from you a bent mind that runs after the cravings of the flesh all day long? that would turn from all that is good to satiate their desires? Who withheld from you those overwhelming desires? Who protected you or delivered you from addiction, from mental illness, the opportunities of easy indiscretions that would alter the course of your life? Is it not proper to thank God in all things. You may acknowledge the good decisions, the right choices, they're real choices, but you must see that God is the one who is to receive all the glory. He's to receive all the credit. And Hezekiah is to perhaps host the people from Chaldea, the Babylonians. Hey, look, uh, God has blessed us. I'm not going to show it to y'all because I don't know if I can trust you. But let me tell you about it. See, my experience has been personal experience without getting into the weeds here too much and testimony or things like that. Boasting about a thing often leads to its elimination. And I've seen this in big matters and small matters in my life. And maybe you've seen it too. When we get prideful or boastful concerning any particular thing, I was always uh, prideful and somewhat boastful about the fact that we own old cars. You say, how can you be proud of owning old cars? 
Well, you get puffed up with pride because it's such a wise financial decision. Mm. Aren't I smart? And that we would run these things to a couple hundred thousand miles and that, you know, we would never had a car payment. You know, we haven't had a car payment in over 20 years that we would be wise about those things. Um, but was that not counsel given me by God? Can I not search the scriptures and find all those principles there that you should be wise about these things and that you should not take pride in them because he has provided them all. And indeed, he's provided us with three vehicles over our lifetime. Four, actually. Isn't that crazy? And the fact that they ran as long as they did, you know, I, I think I saw myself getting a little prideful there. We sunk a bunch of money into one, into the suspension and things like that to fix it up. What happened? The engine failed. Like, big time. Like, literally, like, weeks after finishing all this overhaul of the suspension. Couple thousand bucks, like that. Well, not proud of that anymore. I can confess it to you that I was prideful in in boasting about, you know, people be talking about, oh, I've got this awful car payment, or oh, I've got this new car and I spent all this, you know, thousands to get something fixed. And, and I'd be like, oh, we have this old piece of junk and if it dies tomorrow, I don't care. And it, that is still true. But I'll be a little more humble about it and say, by God's grace, we've done well and he has blessed us. So that's the first encouragement is thank him in all things and be very watchful against pride because pride can kind of sneak up on you. And here's how you be watchful against it. Examine your motives in all that you say. When we're having conversations with other people and we're engaged in the, the give and take, the back and forth of, of conversing with others and we're just enjoying a conversation, we have to be mindful is, is what I'm about to say, am I going to say this to puff myself up, to make myself look good? Am I saying this for the purpose of impressing this human being? And then we'd better default to not maybe saying anything if we're not sure. but at least pause to give ourselves time to examine our own motives. And when we do come away from a conversation and saying, you know, I was kind of boasting there, I was kind of prideful, we need to repent to the Lord about it. And maybe go back to the person that we spoke to and say, you know, we, we spoke the other day and I know it's a minor things, you know, it's probably, you probably didn't even notice, but I was being a bit prideful and what I really meant to do was to give God the glory for how he has blessed me. And I missed that opportunity, but I want to tell you now, any, any good that we've ever received is from him. See how easy that is? Would that be well received by a brother or sister in Christ? And we all say amen. Amen. So let's be watchful against pride, and let's be reminded, most importantly, of the true gospel. And for that, we're going to look ahead in the book of Isaiah in just a little bit to Isaiah chapter 53, which you'll hear more about in the coming weeks. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5, it says this about Jesus Christ. It's very clear this passage is about him, especially when we understand this theologically. Got it? All right. He says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced 
for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And when you look at the overarching context of Isaiah, yeah, there's this wonderful healing in it of Hezekiah, this physical healing that takes place. But the vast majority of sickness in the entire book of Isaiah refers to sin. By his stripes we are healed. He paid the price for sins once for all, the the perfect and the holy and the sinless for the sinner. The Son of God for all the sons of God. And so this is the gospel that Jesus Christ came, that he offered himself in our place to take upon the wrath of God that we had earned with all of our sinning so that when he rose, he could offer to us eternal life in his name and a place to be with God forever. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you and thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the truth of it that we can see through all of the Old Testament and that we can see through all of life as we look around, we see this theme of redemption, the idea of sin and pride and and forgiveness playing over and over again. I pray, Lord, that you indeed will be known and glorified by your people. I pray that you would make yourself known to us through these scriptures that you would give us watchfulness over ourselves and our inward attitude. Point out pride to us, Lord, and let us accept the correction, the pain of it, the difficulty of it, the awkwardness of it when it necessitates us talking to others. Lord, we know you can heal all those things, so let us accept it. Let us repent of it, and let us turn to you for cleansing, For you have promised that if we will confess, you are faithful and just, not just to forgive, but to purify. So I pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding of these things this day. Lord, if anyone is hearing this that does not belong to you, I pray that you would convict them of their sins, that you would cause them great concern over them, and that you would give them the faith to repent, and that you would drive them to one of your people to tell them of what has happened, that they may help them through it, that you may be glorified by the ministry of your body, the church, in the, in the saving of that soul. So Lord, I pray that you would just minister mightily to each and every one of us to apply this scripture in a way that will glorify your name, that will unify your church, that will proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying world. We thank you. And we praise you for all that you are doing in all the nations to this day. In Jesus' name, amen.